There are a lot of people certainly post-Trump that are excited to run in these tough areas and anything that we can do to provide even baselines of campaign support for them is really important. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Jessica Post, is the executive director of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, or DLCC. The DLCC is the national party committee that supports state legislative races around the country. And Jessica returns to the show to talk about how she's built the organization so that it can be a significant force in our politics. And we did much better than expected in the state legislatures in the 2022 midterms. Jessica and I had a very good conversation about leadership, which is so important in these times. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Jessica at the DLCC. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. I talked to you last in February of 2018, or at least that's when the episode came out. Yeah. Which is a political lifetime or so ago. What you been up to? We had a great election cycle this year. It was surprising to a lot of folks, including us. And what we knew for sure is that we had to protect all of the Democratic chambers on the map. And we did that successfully. We protected every single Democratic chamber for the first time since 1934, which is really big. And then we also flipped four chambers red to blue from the Pennsylvania House, which is still in a little bit of controversy, but I think we'll prevail after we win these special elections. The Michigan House and Senate and the Minnesota State Senate, those were perennial targets at DLCC. So we're thrilled. And then we're really close actually to flipping the New Hampshire State House as well. We know that this cycle, abortion obviously mattered as far as a, a huge issue in many of these states. But we also try to learn our lessons every cycle. And when I came back to DLCC, DLCC was a tiny organization. When I came back, we had 12 staff and $15 million of a budget. And this cycle, we had nearly 80 staff on board and we spent more than $53 million. So we've been able to grow the organization sizably and then invest in many of these state legislative chambers cycle after cycle to help them build up their email fundraising lists and to make sure that we're running strong independent expenditures. So we always knew that a lot of these chambers were multi-cycle plays, and we were happy that the investments came home to roost the cycle. When I've talked to some of your peer executive directors, people who might partner with you and so on, they point to you as a very successful and skillful ED. And 
I want to know why. You sort of cited like you've grown the organization, you've grown the staff, but I suspect that there's more to that feeling that they have about you than just top line numbers. What do you think is creating such a good reputation for you out in the field? I appreciate that. That's very kind to hear. I think many of the peer executive directors, they understood the state of the DLCC before I came back. And so I think they've seen the growth. They've seen the change at DLCC. The thing that we did that I think was really difficult is, you know, a lot of folks decide that when they run an organization, they're just going to bring in their friends and folks that they've worked with before. In my case, we had to create a lot of new systems. We had to create open hiring processes, stronger HR structures. We redefined our benefit structures. I set this big vision for the organization. Our goal is to win a majority of the state legislative chambers by 2030. But in doing that, we also knew that we had to build a bunch below that, which means making sure you have multi-state compliance structures so you can spend money in specific states. And then I'll also say knowing what you don't know, you have to make sure that you're hiring to your weaknesses and operating with a lot of humility, that leadership is really, really difficult. It's not for the faint of heart. One of the things that I've been willing to do is operate with a lot of grit and kind of stay in the space, even though it's difficult. And then I have to give a shout out to my partner, Heather Williams, who is, we now have a president ED structure. She's been here the whole time. And she'll become the interim president while I'm on leave. And Heather and I really have complementary skills. She understands the multi-state compliance. She had an initial fundraising background. She understands the state government affairs space. And then I came back from Emily's List with all of this digital campaign knowledge, organizational management knowledge. And we were able to kind of sew those skills together and make decisions together. I also brought on an executive coach. As soon as I came back to DLCC, it was a big jump. I was going from running a small department at Emily's List to running an organization. And so I understood that, look, like this is growth. And I don't think I understood how personally challenging it would be. It was certainly personally challenging, but I understood I was taking on a new professional challenge and I didn't want and kind of emperor has no clothes situation. I wanted people to be able to tell me this isn't going well. This is going well. Nothing. It hasn't perfect, but we've done a lot to make the organization function. I want to ask some specifics about that growth in leadership because I'm very interested in that topic. And it's certainly something that as an ecosystem, we're uneven in how well we manage and lead. Who was this executive coach? And tell me a little bit more about that relationship and how that could be helpful. I interviewed several executive coaches, some from the management center. And then I interviewed Heather Kashner, who had been one of my peers at Emily's List. But Heather Kashner, she went to Oxford and got a coaching certificate. And so this was part of her background. She was a few years my senior and had worked in sort of other fields. And so I decided to hire her and she coached me. She did overall organizational visioning consulting for DLCC and also coached Heather Williams. And it really helped us with alignment. And now Heather Kashner's come in house, actually. She's now our COO. We're working now with a woman named Pam Coleman. She was at both the Biden and the Obama White House doing personnel. And she did personnel for the state of New Mexico as well. I met her in 2012. 
on the ground in New Mexico. And I was really impressed by her like leadership philosophy. There are a lot of very good coaches out there. If you're really willing to dig in, it's a tough relationship, but if you can sustain it long-term, the feedback that you get can be incredible and just absolutely transformative for both you as a leader, but also your organization. Well, the idea that you could enmesh your coach so much in your organization that you bring her in and have kind of full-time use of those skills that clearly you found beneficial, I think that's a pretty unusual situation. Sounds like quite a move. Thank you. I mean, we were really lucky to be able to bring her in house as the COO. I mean, there are sometimes that I'll joke that she knows too much <laughs> about us, but she's been extremely professional and having that sort of dashboard view on my strengths, Heather Williams' strengths, and then just the different organizational pieces has been enormous for us. And she's been able to just move mountains in terms of getting us to decision-making documents and really holding us all accountable. I've had some coaches myself and I've coached some on my own end. I know that sometimes one has the opportunity to share your insecurities, your worries, and to get feedback about things that a lot of times there isn't a good venue for outside of that relationship. What do you think were the areas where you found most growth for yourself? You do have to be, I think, very vulnerable. And I definitely a Brene Brown person. I also went to a Brene Brown leadership training that I found really, really valuable. And so, you know, one of the things Brene says is if you're a leader and if you don't have a therapist and a coach, you're probably not doing it right. I think some of the things that I worked through is I have ADHD. And so that comes with a lot of strengths, but it comes with some challenges. So I think working with her to try to create structures in my schedule with our assistants to make sure that I get things done, being able to identify some of those strengths. You know, one of the strengths of ADHD is being able to connect a lot of dots. And that's one of the things that helped me coming back from Emily's list and having been at DLCC before to be able to like really dig in. And after our finance events, sometimes I would send an email with 25 bullets of things that I thought that we could do better making sure that some of the feedback that I'm giving is structured and follows sort of a cogent train of thought. So I think those are some of those things. And then appreciating, I've always been able to, I think, appreciate strengths in others. But the more that I was receiving coaching, the more that I kind of understood, we all sort of come to the workplace with vulnerabilities and anxieties and being able to, to kind of recognize and kind of get out of my own head and sort of humanize sort of the other people that I was working with, I think has been really helpful. Probably just drilling in, like, the biggest thing was translating my big picture vision. Hey, we need to raise $50 million by 2020. Translating that vision to what that means step-by-step step and what the individual departmental goals needed to be to get there. So Heather Kashner and then Heather Williams were really good about that. Um, just getting me to kind of either like put the things down on paper, which was, a, I think, a really good exercise between us. They would say, can you just write this down? And then we'll talk about if this is understandable because I think they realized that I was better at organizing my thoughts in writing and just sort of like able to flesh things out a little bit better. So we did a lot of that to just... And then Williams is great at asking clarifying questions like, no, is this a priority? Do you mean this? So she's very good at like 
teasing that information out. I, I really appreciate your openness around that. The old model, as I see it, of leadership was you pretend that you are fully secure in all ways, that you have no flaws, make all decisions clear, you order people around. There's still people operating with that model, but I think there's something much more real about letting people know that you know that you're imperfect, that you're a human. And the truth is that everybody knew that already. Like anybody who works for somebody knows whether they're organized, knows whether they're on time, knows whether they keep their commitments, knows whether they hold you accountable, all of that. It's not a secret. But I'm curious, like, how do you draw a line about how much to share with your staff about your internal makeup and how much do you keep to yourself or to your relationship with coaches and things like that? I probably should draw a better line, I think. <laughs> well, I don't be- know. No, I mean, I I think to be honest, there's sometimes, because I think one of the difficulties is when you are vulnerable, the good thing is sometimes people will meet you halfway and be like, hey, I get it. You're you're telling me that we're going to do this together. Like, let's figure this out together. And then sometimes other people take advantage of that vulnerability if they're not as used to people sort of coming to them with that. The thing that I've been uncompromising with is the overall vision for the organization. So that I'm really confident and clear in. And what I'm willing to say is, look, like we want to get to the majority of state legislative chambers by 2030. We need to raise this amount of money. I can tell you that for sure. What I need help and that you and I are going to have to do together is to figure out how we do this. It's a moonshot, but we want to get to 50, right? So that that is 70% of the population. That is protecting reproductive choice in most states, that's the entire path to the U.S. presidency. That's most of the congressional districts, right? So that's us standing up and protecting folks' constitutional rights in most states, right? So that I'm like, this is what we have to do. We're uncompromising about this. And then then there's certain sort of values that we want to put into place too. Like, hey, we're always going to be respectful to state legislators, that's something we have to do every day. Like we're really proud of the work that they do. So I think there's a lot of like sort of goals and tone setting that I'm very clear on, but I realize that, yeah, I'm imperfect and no one on my team is completely perfect. So we've got to figure out together how to get there. Well, the DLCC is, you know, it's an important institution in the party and become, I think, more so under your leadership. There's all of the the sort of, the battle between the parties and how well that's going and how well you guys are doing at it. And then there's also sort of the internal, the organization building, which is in service of those political goals, right? And both of those are your responsibilities and your challenges. How do you think about prioritization of the internal versus the external because there's controversy in the progressive ecosystem about whether sometimes we get hung up on the small and the internal and and lose sight of the bigs because of the challenges of management and leadership and organization building. How do you think about that? I think it's a huge challenge, especially at DLCC where we want staff to to stay three to four years. So we really are interested in having staff spend more time with us than the 18 months that they might spend at 
a federal party committee. And so because of that, that means we've had to put, you know, stronger HR structures into place. We have to think about people's 401ks if they're going to stay with us for five years. It definitely is a rub. But if we're really trying to work toward inclusion and and to really use the skills of all of the diversity of our party and and use the skills of all the people that work for us, you have to set up structures to make that happen. What, what, so what sort of structures have you set up? You mentioned a bunch of them up the up front, right? You know, how to compensate, but yeah. how are you doing in that? How, if you self-evaluate, like, are you getting the kind of tenure from your employees that you want? Are you getting the diversity that you want? Are you getting the culture that you want? Yeah. I mean, look, I think we'd love to have longer tenure from a lot of our employees. Still part of politics is some people sometimes are here for two years, but we have had a a number of folks stay three to four years. And that's been great for us. I mean, we lose a lot of institutional knowledge. The state legislative level, the ballots really specialized. You can't, it's difficult to Google the target list. The campaign finance laws are different in every state. The district sizes are different everywhere. The way that you wage campaigns is different. And so being able to retain staff, I think has been good. You know, so I feel like we have decent staff retention. Uh, We'd love to increase the diversity of our staff. I think everybody sort of feels that way. We're doing much better in terms of staff diversity than we've been. And then we're fully hybrid. That's been a tough thing to transition from an organization where everybody's in the building to a, a fully hybrid org. In a hybrid org, I think there's some cultural things that you can see, but that's, that's, I think, been one of our difficulties. But we've also, because we are hybrid, we've been able to make great hires across the country. So we have, you know, a regional political director that's based in Oklahoma. We've been able to hire folks all over the country. Um, And that certainly helped with the diversity of perspectives, the broader diversity spectrum. Those things have helped too. And then, you know, we do other things that some of the other companies don't do. You know, we do a hundred bucks a month toward people's student loan repayment. That's something I'd heard a radio ad. And I thought, man, one of the, the things that keeps people out of DC is just the expense. So we've tried to do a lot of things that maybe are more immediately impactful for our staff's bottom lines. We put a little bit of money every month and or every year into their um, FSAs. So because the cost of dental is so high. So we've tried to do a lot of things to defray the cost of working at, you know, in DC. And now folks, you know, have the choice that we still have a transit benefit if people want to come in and work in our office. We also have a number of other strong benefits to try to keep people longer, like strong paid family leave, for example. What has been the biggest challenge in keeping your organization healthy and moving it forward? The biggest challenge we're, I think, experiencing more recently is, you know, in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, we had a lot of national democratic donors across the country be really excited about redistricting. So the sustainability of, of fundraising, especially among major donors and online donors, it's just a really volatile revenue stream. So you, you have all these things you want to do, but it's really difficult for us sometimes to predict what and when revenue will come in. And then I think another big question is the balance between the core staff that we keep at DLCC and then spending in the States. That's always going to be, especially since we can spend unlimited funds in many of these States. One of the difficulties is always balancing like, 
well, how many staff do we need in our headquarters or in our virtual headquarters versus what we fund in states? And I think another big challenge is the cyclical nature of legislative leadership. So there's times where we feel like, hey, we've built this great organization in this state, and then the legislative leader is term limited or moves on. And then we have to go back and resume a lot of the same conversations that we started having years ago. It used to be a lot of these state staffs were really skeletal, but when you start trying to raise increased money online, individual donor money, those are staff intensive activities (laughs) typically versus the way you used to be able to fundraise for your legislative caucus with like large contributions from labor, which is still a, a big line of revenue. So those are some of the things that we think about all the time in the States. Like, what do the States need? And I I think one of our tragedies has been, we sometimes will build a digital operation in a state that has a $8,000 line of revenue that's paying all the core staff. And then that staffer that was driving that moves on to another level of the ballot. So that's been difficult too, right? Is retaining strong staff inside the legislative caucus programs as well. Yeah, I mean... It, it would be lovely to get to permanent professionals at every level that you really need it, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And look, in some states, the, we're trying to make sure, you know, we increased our salary scales to be more in line with the federal levels of the ballot to try to be competitive. But in states, they're still lagging behind sometimes in terms of what they're willing to pay a professional. Running a state legislative caucus is a tough job. You know, you have all of your Democratic caucus members coming at you for a plan. You're trying to keep your candidates on a disciplined campaign plan, knocking doors, raising money, approving all the digital, direct mail, TV. It's not an easy job at all. And to get people to stay there, it's it's difficult sometimes. How much do you think the work that you do, that the soft side does, that the campaign arm, the caucus campaigns, that the individual campaigns... How much does that matter versus just playing the political environment? I think it matters a lot. I know there's a big, there's been a lot, a big discussion about the role of persuasion in our party. Our candidates are relatively unknown. You know, I think certainly politics has gotten a lot more nationalized. We used to hold the majority in the Mississippi legislature up through like 2013. We just lost the Kentucky legislature in 2016, right? So there used to be much more of this like state and federal divide, but now as messaging has gotten more nationalized, that's been more challenging. But we still win and overperform the top of the ticket all over the country to win state legislative chambers. We still have rural areas. So I think candidate recruitment really matters. Getting candidates to go out and knock on doors is incredibly important. And then this is candidate recruitment, but getting candidates to tell their authentic story um, because we have great, like I said, we have great people running and great people serving in these legislatures. And the Democrats are really oriented around helping with cost of living issues, making sure education is fully funded. They're really pragmatic when they get into these legislative roles. About everyone I've talked to about state legislative funding and helping with the campaigns has been very focused on the targeting aspect of that where the money should go based on how close the legislature is, based on estimates about particular districts being flippable or holdable or whatever the correct terminology is. And 
it makes sense from the viewpoint, I think, of a party organization to do that well and use your resources most efficiently. There's also kind of simultaneously a school of thought that we have to be able to field campaigns and candidates even where we're not projected to win, where the time frame is longer for us to climb up towards parity or or victory. How do you think about like making base level investments in red places or purple places or blue places? How do you think about like targeting versus coverage, I guess? Yeah. I mean, look, we've had to be pretty brutal with our funding because there's not enough out there. So we've had to make a really difficult and strategic choices. Like if you want to talk to a a person who's strategic with money, talk to any legislative caucus director, any of our regionals, they're very sort of like brutal budgeters. But I think, you know, I, I have two schools of thoughts on this. Yes. Like I hope that there are some parties that have done this really well. The Minnesota DFL party hired a red to blue district coordinator to just simply provide campaign support. Because remember in a state like Minnesota, there's 134 house districts, 40 of those districts will be targets. So that's a huge amount of work to just service those and fund those 40 targets. And then in addition to that, they wanted to expand their territory and make sure that they were running in some of the rural greater Minnesota areas where folks were losing. And what they decided to do is they decided to fund a staffer and then make sure these candidates had access to sort of baseline resources. The thing that is important to me is that we're honest in the candidate recruitment process as somebody who's recruited a lot of candidates. I think we just have to be able to say, listen, like you're doing an incredible service to the party and in holding up this district and going out and knocking on doors. But I think we need to be honest about the resources that they can expect. People are quitting their jobs. They're making really big decisions around their families. Like, these aren't just sort of pawns on a political chess piece to me. They're human beings. And as someone who's been on the other side of the table in these conversations, I think it's really important that we're clear with people. But there are a lot of people, certainly post-Trump, that are excited to run in these tough areas. And anything that we can do to provide even baselines of campaign support for them is really important. When you look across the whole landscape at districts you did not target, that you thought you could not win, did we win any of them? Yeah. I mean, we certainly, we we picked up districts. We also picked up a lot of districts like on the edge, right, in 2022. In states like New Hampshire, where the budgets are smaller and the candidates matter a lot more, or the candidates matter a lot everywhere, but, you know, in these small geographies where candidate name recognition, you're able to pick up seats sort of unexpectedly. So in places where you have smaller district populations, you're able to have sort of more upsets based on candidate quality and the candidate just going out simply knocking doors. So there's always a few upsets is sort of every year across the country. What has surprised you most in the last cycle? In 2022? Yeah. Look, I think a lot of the polling was in fact accurate in, in these states. We did have predictions in states like Michigan that the chambers were really winnable. And is that basically because they got a f more fair redistricting situation out of Michigan? Yeah, the redistricting was much more fair. They also, I mean, they raised a ton of money. They raised $23 million to float the Michigan State Senate. And the polling in Michigan State Senate district populations are larger than a lot of other places. So obviously your polling accuracy in your larger population districts is typically better. Um, so the polling was really accurate. I think that was huge. 
I think we were able, we were really concerned about losing in Oregon, which people here may be surprised by, but it, we critically had to defend in those states. One of my theories of the case going into the election was in the states where abortion was at risk or had been banned, I thought that we were going to do better in those states because the hit rang true against the Republicans. And then I thought it would be more challenging in states like Oregon, there were constitutional, there were like, I guess, like row codification already. And so my concern was in states like Oregon, will people believe that abortion can be banned? So that was a challenge that we had in Minnesota and Nevada, but ultimately we were able to to win across the country. I mean, that was exciting. So surprising. Some of these wins were certainly surprising. And some of the protections were surprising. You know, we were, came within 3,000 votes of losing the Oregon State House, which I think people might have a hard time jiving that with winning the Pennsylvania House. But it was just a very mixed environment out there. At least at the elite level, the January 6th insurrection, big lie, refusal to accept a presidential election out of Trump. It's just a historically bad and giant factor. But I think there's dispute about how that played out on a more state legislative or local level. From what data you saw, how important was the nature of the current Republican Party and its sort of betrayal of democratic ideals from the top? How much did that play into things or did it not at all? Well, I mean, look, one of the challenges coming out of January 6th is that Liz Cheney and some of the January 6th committee members lifted up folks like Rusty Bowers, the Republican speaker in Arizona who actually passed a lot of anti-voting laws, and Mike Shirky. He talked about like one world government in his exit speech. He was caught in a hot mic saying that Antifa had committed January 6th. He apologized and he was caught in another hot mic saying like, oh, I had to apologize for that, but I really feel like it was Antifa. So they celebrated some of these these folks in states that sort of didn't deserve to be celebrated. So as a result, many of the Republicans tried to run with that and say, look, like, I'm not a Donald Trump Republican. Like, I'm a reasonable Republican that's going to go into the legislature and, and do good work. And I will say even to Democrats that this January 6th committee sort of set this up, whereas the core of the Republican Party is totally rotten. There's election deniers deep, deep within their party. You know, we were the first organization we did. Republicaninsurrections.co, we identified one in 12 state legislative candidates had signed up either on Stop the Steal. Many candidates attended the insurrection in D.C., bust people down there. So we we understood that there was a sort of problem. So part of what we had to do is say, if we had any proof points around, hey, this person is an insurrectionist. This person is an election denier. But then we also had to say, and they are going to prioritize relitigating the 2020 election over the things your family cares about. So here you're caring about jobs in the economy. And this guy's out there defending Vladimir Putin. Like we, you're, you really want to like the jobs and economy person. So we had to do a lot of contrasting. It wasn't necessarily a, I wish I could say it was automatically disqualifying. But there's also a believability factor, I think, with some voters that they still don't understand that it's the majority of the Republican Party, right, is kind of in this camp and they're being held accountable by Trump if they are unwilling to be on team insurrection. So do you think that 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 his tactic of election denialism served 
his party electorally at the state legislative level or hurt? I think it definitely hurt them at the state legislative level. I just think it was more difficult to prove that this rank and file Republican member who may wear a mask at a meeting and distribute hand sanitizer and like bring turkeys out at Thanksgiving is the person that like was standing next to the QAnon shaman inside the U.S. Capitol. <laughs> so those it, we had to, I think, do a lot of work to tie those things together. When you think about this time in American politics, like you've been around for a while, we we're in a time of tremendous polarization around uh, you know, culture war stuff, around economic stuff, around immigration, around electoral laws, all kinds of things from policy to personality. What do you think you understand as a practitioner about our politics right now that maybe the average person, reader of the newspaper, doesn't? I think people are still very concerned about what's happening in their day-to-day lives. So we have to credential our candidates always on the economy, education, sort of local issues. If our candidates talk too much, especially at the state level around national issues, they often seem disconnected from the voters that they're going to serve. So I think that's one thing that I kind of immediately understand. And I think doing state work and, you know, my mom is a swing voter. So having having that both like personally frustrating, but politically helpful relationship is, is kind of a helpful piece. I also think that I grew up in Missouri. I went to school in rural Missouri. Like it's always been bad. You know, I had a guy in, in college repeat this sort of infamous Todd Aiken legitimate rape phrase where he said like, you know, the, in, in the case of rape, the human body shuts it down. Women, women don't get pregnant in those cases. Right. So that was that was more than 20 years ago. And now here we are 27 years later, like having the same sort of debate in the states. So the Republican Party always had its extremism in it. And I think now some of it's just been more brought to the surface. A lot of politics seems to be conducted online these days, conducted in social media of various levels and platforms. Some people think that we're not doing a good job of waging the battle there. Some people are working pretty hard on it. How important do you think is that to winning at the level that you operate? I think it's hugely important in terms of getting into folks' local networks, especially with the decline of the local media. Being able to get your clear facts out online is is really, really important. And I'm not just talking about online disinformation. I'm simply talking even about like getting the basics of what folks believe out into people's networks. You know, you have some really smart electeds who will just simply add people on Facebook when they meet them at the doors. And so at least some of the information that they're putting out is like elevated into the news feed. So I think there's a, this is just Facebook, but there's, I do think that this is something we certainly could do better. Online disinformation really, really concerning and and happening at our level of the ballot as well. So being able to get some of the bad actors off some of these sites, I think is hugely important too. Do you employ technology? Are there consultants that you recommend? Like what is the ecosystem like for that fight? Well, I think, you know, for example, like Jory Craig does an incredible job of 
online monitoring, you know, our digital folks on our IE side, um, there's sort of some specialists in states as well that, that do some of the specific work, but having, being able to monitor sort of the source accounts in terms of disinformation is important. We had a special election in 2017 for control of the Washington State Senate, and there was a ton of online disinformation being put out about our Democratic candidate and her support for needle exchange sites. So we don't know that it's happening at our level of ballot. We know it's affecting our level of ballot. And I think just figuring out how to get one of our challenges at, with any consultant is making sure that we can get folks at our small scale or at our individualized district scale to do the work. I mean, like I said, 40 targets in Minnesota alone, right? Those are 40 geographies, 40 districts that we have to look at just for the state house. The state Senate, you know, has overlapping targets, but you're looking at 56 to 60 targets in two legislative chambers. So it's it, being able to get that, the skills at cost at our level of the ballot is a challenge that we always face when we're looking at new technologies. What's the guy's name in New York State who won the the Republican who won the House seat who lied about every element of his resume? George Santos. So yes, so Mr. Yeah. Santos, if that's his name, yes, um, uh, he kind of highlighted the problem of the opposition research function in that case, at least. Right? What do you guys do on research of that sort? Where are you, and where would you like to be? Well, we we do have strong internal research. We've joined a lot of the research consortiums in a number of these states in terms of getting books done. We've had state-specific projects where we've updated our candidates and Republican candidates sort of Wikipedia sites to be able to, to surface some of the information. I think there's two sort of challenges with research. One of them is, is co again, cost. And then the second is researchers highlighting the things that may be most impactful, you know, like if you read the DCCC Santos book, they they have in there that it made the charity is not registered, but then they sort of like discount the finding, right? So I think there's also a working with researchers to navigate where these threads could go and sort of the hits. So making sure that it's not just when you're working with researchers, it's not like produce the book, finish the research book, then you're done but that we have enough folks that are able to kind of update, look, fact check. We have a great internal research team. We had folks on our IE side that were really strong. And I just think we may need additional practitioners in many of these states to kind of stay with us through the cycle to make sure that we're catching. And this is some of what happened with Santos. Like they didn't catch some of the Twitter contradictions. The book was published in June, right? And it was clear that some of the threads were not kind of followed. What's different in the challenge upcoming with 2024 as you see it than it was with the last two? In 2020, right, one of the things that we thought was that our candidates everywhere could get to Biden performance, and that was not the case. Many of our candidates in the 2020 cycle underperformed President Biden. And some of that may have just been because of the binary choice between Biden and Trump. So looking at 2024, you know, you remember back in the heady days of Obama, in 08 and 12, you sort of knew, okay, in a presidential election, we're the Democrats. All of our candidates are going to do better everywhere. Now, like, that's not always true, right? Like, so we saw in 2020 and in 2016 that, like, 
the depths of division in the United States were like on show, right? So you had all these suburban districts and states where Hillary Clinton did well, where we would pick up seats. And then you'd have states where we would lose seats because of the top of the ticket. So I think the first question is, what do the splits look like in some of these places that we picked up in 2022? Our immediate challenges are making sure we defend our map. We have to hold on to the Pennsylvania House. That's especially important in terms of electoral certification because of when the, the House is sworn in. If we lose the House, then we could have the fake elector situation that's been sort of widely discussed. And remember, like the legislature thinks it has its own authority to send those fake electors into D.C. Depending on the Supreme Court decision upcoming, right? Yes, depending upon that. We'll see. And and their respect for that, right? People thought I had like a tinfoil hat when I was reading all those articles at the end of 2020, but we wanted to be prepared. So protecting the Pennsylvania House, the Michigan State House, the Minnesota House, and then seeing what we can do in other states to protect the path of the presidency, but looking at places that are really close. So that means investing in Arizona, um, increasing investment in other sort of long-term states, looking at Georgia, looking at Texas. And then I think trying to get a fair shake on redistricting in some of these places. You know, we have really gerrymandered maps in Georgia, South Carolina, Texas still, Wisconsin, right? So being able to win the Wisconsin State Supreme Court in 2023 and then being able to try to file challenges to those maps, I think is incredibly important. So that's, I think, top of mind. So, so a lot of that comes down to funding, especially since we want to, again, be able to balance the places that we have to hold on to with places that we, we need to wage additional challenges to. You're one democratic organization among a constellation of them. What do you wish the others the party writ large would do differently? I think there's a lot more room for us to kind of coordinate as legal up and down the ticket. I wish there was more interest in having folks all go out and sort of like canvas together at sort of the same time. I think one thing that I've always been worried about is voting rights and and how voting rights affect our ability to win. I think finally our party has caught up on that. They're finally in a, a place where they understand that, like, the Republicans are talking about suppressing 37,000 voters in Milwaukee. That's the difference between winning and losing. So we need to be up. Yeah, they just were bragging about it, I saw. Yes. <laughs> so we need to be up on the laws that affect voting rights. So I think we finally have our heads wrapped around voting rights litigation. But I still don't think that our party completely understands how the levers of power all go together. So, you know, this cycle, people would say to me, Jessica, you know, we've got voting rights covered. We've got the governor in this state. Well, that's not how it works, right? Like state legislatures make the voting laws. (laughs) The governor signs off on them. The secretary of state implements these elections. So I just feel like Republicans are playing three level chess with power in a way that we aren't. And I often think all of us are sort of solely focused on, on our individual job. Like my job is to win state legislatures instead of thinking about a strategy to build power across the entire democratic ecosystem. You just sort of made a nod to, I don't know, the effectiveness of the Republican organizations. I don't know enough about them to know whether that's an accurate thing or not. Do you think that they have their act together more than we do? 
I think the Republicans understand power in ways that we do not operate in. So for example, they win chambers in 2020. And on the first day of legislative session, Heritage Foundation is is there with a very clear voter suppression strategy to change the voting laws in states like Iowa. They know which states have more progressive laws. They understand that those laws affect electoral outcomes. They went in immediately, like day one of 2021, to change these laws. I think we're behind in understanding the role of voting rights in, in winning elections. Whose job on our side is it to do that? That's a good question. I mean, I think we've given a lot of it to Mark Elias, although that's litigation, that's not legislation. And so you do have great groups that are, are getting increased funding, Center for Secure and Modern Elections. But it, it just seems like the Republican Party on day one was working with the Republican State Leadership Committee, which is our Republican counterpart, the Heritage Foundation, their groups that are like allegedly nonpartisan and going in immediately. I don't know that I'm saying that they're working ethically. I think they are probably not working ethically, but I do think that there's there's some missing connective tissue in terms of how money gets spent that people just kind of don't understand, I think. If we need to orchestrate something like that, a defense of that or a rollback of those laws, and just to have the machinery to do it, where should that be located? Well, there is, there's a new PAC, Open Democracy PAC, that I think is impressive, but some of it is getting everyone aligned in the party around controlling all the levers of power, right? I think as Democrats, we keep thinking that the federal government's going to come in to save us. You can't just ha- have the U.S. Senate and think that's going to fix everything. You can't just be like, well, if we passed SB1, everything would be fine. Like, that's not the case. There's still local power over elections. So I think we need like a systemic approach to everything from clerks to governors, like at the state level. Is that a DNC thing? Is that a president thing? What do you think? I think, I mean, certainly the DNC could do it. I mean, I think the Open Democracy PAC had a sort of a strategy that they had written out this cycle. They did some of it with Run for Something. I just don't know how well funded it was. Who's running Open Democracy Pack? It's Eric Ming. He's fantastic, right? And I think the work that they're doing at the Center for Secure and Modern Elections, they're integrated with us. They're fantastic too. But the, I, I think it's just thinking about how do we win all these levers? Um, how do we win all the levers of power? How do we do this together? And how do we, how do we coordinate in between the levers of the ballot? to get this done so much at stake it seems like the focus the funding the team ought to be on it yes yeah i agree right we sat down with the dnc right we said here's what you should care about right you should care about at our level the ballot one voting rights two electoral certification in these states and then three redistricting so and i think for the implementation of the president's agenda they're Without legislatures, the everything from the American Rescue Plan money gets held up. And so a lot of these presidential successes are getting blocked in the states. Yeah. What should I have asked you that I didn't? Is there anything you want to say about the recent Virginia special election? This is a huge win. We've been trying to win in Virginia Beach for a really long time. The seat was open because State Senator Jen Kiggins beat Elaine Luria 
to go to Congress. And it, it, we're, we knew that we were on really competitive turf. It was a district that Glenn Young had won by more than four points. We had a great candidate, Aaron Rouse. The White House shouted him out today, actually, at a press conference. And it was a huge flip. He was a former NFL player. He was running against a very good Republican candidate who is a retired Navy commander. And obviously in Virginia Beach, there's quite a bit of military, shipbuilding, et cetera. So Rouse is a city council member. And in terms of the election, he ran a, a great election. A lot of it was focused on protecting reproductive choice. And the Republicans are filing immediately bills that there's a 50-week abortion ban. They have that ridiculous, like, a woman, a pregnant woman counts as two people in the high occupancy vehicle lane when they're driving. That's like another piece of legislation that <laughs> they've put out in Virginia. So the well, maybe maybe that's a good one for you right now. I, <laughs> I was like, well, personally beneficial at this moment, <laughs> definitely a bad law. It was a huge win. And they, they ran kind of three message tracks. One was Aaron Rouse talking about his economic background, um, and kind of the fact that he would understand he grew up with not a lot and, you know, clean buses and to be able to support his family and then in his, his sort of family of origin. And then he was the last line of defense in the NFL and he's going to be the last line of defense on abortion rights also. So that was a huge issue in this district and Republicans, it's like the dog who caught the car. They can't stay away from, from it, even though they know it's really politically unpopular and unpalatable. And so we think that's a good sign. We have to hold on to the Virginia State Senate here in 2023 and then flip the Virginia House back. We had a number of losses in the Virginia Beach area in 2021. So we see this as a really good indicator of how we win and the path to victory for 2023. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you again. It's a pleasure to see someone working away at such an important thing and to be staying with it when people, as you say, do leave often jobs after a cycle or two. So for the country, I'm appreciative of your durability there. And I wish you a lot of luck on your break. Thanks so much. I, I appreciate, I really appreciate the invitation to come back on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Jessica Post. She is at dlcc.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.